When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, where do we begin today? Uh, We're going to be beginning by looking at the lie of the land as things are in the UK at the moment. It's been a a strange, <laughs> strange first hundred days or so for Rishi Sunak, but that week has been overshadowed by the by another scandal to beset his government, and, and a scandal that's really been a long running headache. And I found myself talking with my my partner about it the other night. They said to me, "Well." Why is this such a big deal? Why is the resignation of Nadim Zahawi as Conservative Party chair worth paying attention to? Because at the first sight, it could seem a bit like, a bit like Westminster gossip, and he doesn't hold a particularly important role. He, he's, he's been the sort of head of the Conservative Party's election operations, and it can seem a little bit like Westminster fiddle-tattle. Mm. But I think it matters because the word sleaze has come back into British political life, and the last time the Tory party was really quite beset by this was the the tail end of the the Thatcher and particularly the John Major years where you had a prime minister who was seen to be quite decent in himself and is quite a decent man himself as I think Rishi Sunak is and John Major is as well dealing with a party that has lots of scandals erupting and of course these a lot of these began under Boris Johnson and uh, to some extent Liz Truss as well. So for those people who don't know, the story here is that the uh, Nadim Zahawi has been a uh, has had quite a rapid ascent as a minister. He's been an MP since 2010. He's the Kurdish-born uh, son of immigrants who came to this country. He actually is, before he came into politics, he famously helped found the well-known pollster YouGov, and it was here that the the seeds of his downfall were, su- were sown because at the time when he set up the business, and of course it, now it's one of the biggest polling companies in the con- in the country uh, worldwide. Uh, reputation doesn't just do political polling; there's lots of consumer polling as well. Very successful business. He he obtained money for it from his father, and as a result of this, he gave his father a stake in the business, what's called founder shares within the business. Now. The exact nature of these isn't exactly important, but suffice to say that these have certain rules around the tax treatment. Now, a couple of years ago, when Mr. Sahawi entered government, he came in firstly as a junior minister in the business department, but his kind of big rise kind of came in sort of 2001 when he was made minister for, for the vaccine rollout. So he really benefited. He was seen as like a, the, the wunderkind of the Johnson government, the sense that he was the minister overseeing this hugely successful, one of the few successful points of Johnson's government of the, of the COVID vaccine rollout at the time, not just the successful vaccine candidates, but getting 
the very high rates of uh, take up that we saw in this country and that were undoubtedly one of the great successes of the Johnson government, or the few ones, I would say. But about this time, he was under investigation by HMRC for the tax treatment of these founder shares that were given to his father when YouGov was set up and apparently that the appropriate rules hadn't been followed. Now, this began in 2001 when Mr Sahawi then quickly entered the cabinet, firstly as Secretary of State for Education, and then in the in the tumultuous summer of uh, Boris Johnson's downfall, two days before Boris Johnson fell, when Rishi Sunak resigned, Nadim Sahawi was made Chancellor by Boris Johnson. Now, Mr Sahawi is often been seen as a close ally of Mr Johnson. If you go back to his 2016 aborted leadership campaign launch, Mr Zahawi sitting in the front row next to Nadine Doris, who's argued Boris Johnson's biggest cheerleader. So here's someone who's not just had a quick rise, but it's also a very close ally of Boris Johnson, a big backer. But two days later, Mr Zahawi chooses to effectively knife Boris Johnson, say, effectively say, although you've made me Chancellor, I don't think you can I don't think you can sack me if I call for you to resign. In a rather extraordinary letter, in that what everything it was basically a resignation letter in everything, but actually resigning, but saying to Boris Johnson, "I will not serve under you as Prime Minister." Uh, Nadim Zahawi didn't keep his top-level cabinet position. He kind of became what's called the chief operating officer of the government. In his own words, he went to the cabinet office, and then when Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister, he was made. Tory party chair. Now, all this time, this tax investigation for HMRC has been going on in the background. Now, of course, what's interesting is that ministers are meant to declare any conflicts of interest. Mm. Now, if you are a, 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 a an MP, you, ha- you are responsible for the oversight of HMRC if you sit on any of the committees. If you're a minister, it's even more important to declare any conflicts of interest because you're, you're effectively your government department is looking into your financial affairs. He then becomes the minister responsible for HMRC at a time when this investigation is ongoing. And then we find out subsequently that his tax investigation is concluded with him making a payment of some £5 million to HMRC to settle the account, effectively. It's penalty payment that is agreed while he is chancellor. And there has mm. been this has been tried to be report for a while. Journalists have been digging into it. And Mr. Zahawi has been throwing around threats of legal acts against journalists effectively since last summer, arguably since 2021. So this is a long-standing issue of public trust where this matter was only settled when he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is an extraordinary conflict of interest. What's more, Boris Johnson was advised about this by the Cabinet Secretary Sir Simon Case against appointing Mr Sahawi and still appointed him anyway. To be chancellors. Now, I don't think we can be surprised, but that's why the Zahari story matters. It's about the fact that the checks and balances inside our system of government have once again been abused, primarily, I would say, by a key ally, Boris Johnson, and by the Johnson government. And it's deeply damaging to the Conservative Party. I'm not going to recuse Rishi Sunak from this in time, but to some extent, he is picking up after Boris Johnson. And after Nadim Zahawi, because don't forget, Nadim Zahawi was only appointed to the Treasury after Sunak resigned. Now, of course, Sunak stayed in Johnson's cabinet as long as he did. He was a senior member. He claims not to have known about the Zahawi tax investigation. HMRC doesn't normally make it a point of telling um, the government if ministers are under active investigation. But the prime minister could have picked up the phone, whether it was Johnson, Truss or Sunak, could have picked up the phone to the Jim Hara, who's the head of HMRC, and asked, is my chancellor, is my is my 
Tory party chairman, is my chance for Duchy of Lancaster under investigation? And they didn't until recently. Um, mm. What is even more interesting, I think, Simon, is how Sunak has played this. Now, normally, I wouldn't say there is a normal pattern to resignations that most politicians don't resign straight away unless they feel they, th- there is no other choice. They usually go when there's no other choice to them mm. because largely they can only be sat by the prime minister and there's usually a bit of time. There's usually a bit of a dance around, the, a, a, you know, th- there's that wonderful phrase that the Downing Street spokesperson gives to the media, which is the, the minister has my full confidence. And that the joke is yes. among journalists that that's, as you know, yes. that's usually the, the, the kiss of death. That's obviously been a bit stretched recently, but ultimately only the prime minister could choose to sack ministers, really, unless they voluntarily resign, which they very rarely do unless they have some great matter of principle or they're so so beyond redemption, so banged to rights that they just can't do it. In the case of Nadim Zaharwe, Downing Street turned to the newly appointed uh, Prime Minister, Prime Ministerial Advisor on Ethics and said, right, we want you to look into this. We want you to investigate and then come up with a conclusive report to see if there's been anything, anything to do with a breach of the ministerial code, which is effectively the standards that ministers have to abide by, the rules they have to abide by mm. in order to hold office. Now, Rishi Sunak then sat back for 10 days and let the investigation carry on. Then, on a Sunday morning, on the Laura, at the same time that Michael Grove is on the Laura Kunzberg show, the Prime Minister announces that he is sacking Nadim Sahawi because the investigation has found that he did actually breach the ministerial code. And the Prime Minister makes a very public showing of saying, I've gone through this process, I've looked into it, my advisor has done this, and I have decided to remove you because of that. Now, the logic for this is to put clear blue water between himself and Boris Johnson. Because don't forget, what ultimately tipped Boris Johnson out of office was his refusal to remove Christopher Pincher the then deputy chief of his post after there were allegations made against him for mm. inappropriate behaviour. Boris Johnson famously lost his ethics advisor. Lord Guy didn't appoint a replacement. So Rishi Sunak is doing this very clearly, very logically, to show that he is different, to show that he is the sleazebuster, to also to, to try and to, to show that he isn't being partisan. Effectively, he's listening to the independent advisor, that he's there and making use of him as well. You could argue he just sat Nadine Zahari sooner. You could argue for that. I actually think in this case, it's a very smart move by the Prime Minister to have done this. I think actually what he can't do, however, is do this for every single case of sleaze. Otherwise, there would just be uh, his ethics advisor would just be utterly snowed <laughs> under. But for this case, I'd actually argue that making use of the independent advisor is a very smart thing to do. And although he gets a lot of flack for not having sacked the Dean to mm. sooner, I completely understand his logic. And actually, I think in this case, in this particular instance, it was a relatively smart decision. Mike, that's probably a very good moment for us just to give you a chance to catch your breath. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Um, so, Mike, um, after um, discussing the um, resignation of Nadim Zahawi, where are we going now? Um, I think it makes sense to actually segue to look at the other big issue that's currently rumbling on in relation to sort of ministerial standards, and that's to do with the allegations surrounding the Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab. And this kind of builds on the point I was talking about before uh, we took the break, which is that there have been numerous um, questions about conduct of senior ministers floating around, certainly since the early days of the Johnson government. Even under Theresa May, this happened as well. There are cases going back to David Cameron too. The case about Dominic Raab is, and I should stress at this point, nothing has been proven. There have been uh, multiple allegations made that basically fall under the kind of uh, broad framework of of bullying about questions over Mr. Raab's conduct when he was Justice Secretary and uh, the Johnson government. So mm. Dominic Raab has had literally two spells at the department. He was firstly Foreign Secretary. Uh, he had a spell at the department as, as a mid-ranking minister under the Theresa May government before he was then in the cabinet. He was then out of government. He then came back in as Foreign Secretary to Boris Johnson, then went back to the Ministry of Justice again, as this time as Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice as well. He's a former lawyer himself, former human rights lawyer, used to work at the Foreign Office, and then he's gone back to the department again after the brief interregnum of uh, Johnson uh, going out and then Truss coming in. So Dominic Raab has a very long relationship with this department, and he's very well known to the civil servants have worked within it, some of who I know myself, and I've spoken to them about this and kind of gauged the mood about him. And whilst to say I've never discussed the exact nature of the allegations against Dominic Raab myself, there is a general impression that he was a fairly firm taskmaster mm-hmm. at the department, and he certainly helped people to high standards. And certainly when Robert Buckland was in, as his successor uh, in the department, it was he was seen as a much it's a very different kind of secretary, much more relaxed and probably easy to get on with. So uh, there's questions about the, where the line is here. That's not for us to deal with. The issue is that lots of civil servants have made allegations against Dominic Raab that effectively his conduct amounted to bullying of them. There's been lots of quite graphic descriptions about people feeling suicidal, about affecting their mental health. It should be said as Mr. Raab has denied this. Nothing has been proven. There is an independent investigation underway. Richard Sinek's appointed a KC to look into this. However, the big issue is not so much to do with whether or not the allegations are true, but it's another headache for the Prime Minister in the sense that his right-hand man, he, when, when Richard Sinek was made Prime Minister, he made Dominic Raab Deputy Prime Minister again, effectively saying, this man is my deputy, this man is my right-hand man. This man can be counted upon, putting him back in the role he was in before. So it was a vote of confidence by Richie Sinek mm-hmm. in Dominic Raab who has had his own leadership ambitions in the past. He ran for Tory leader in 2019. He very briefly considered doing it again in uh, in 2022. He is someone who has also, I think, been rather contentious in the role as well. There's quite an infamous video of him winking at the Labour front bench, which has, has gone round. But again, it brings up this question of standards. And it's also... We talked about how the Deem Zahari case was a smart thing for Richie Sinek. The trouble is with, with doing what he did, 
try to put some clear blue water in being the sleazebuster, he now sets the precedent of having to be tough with his own government and he could spend effectively the rest of his time in office, the remaining 18 months between now and the most likely date of the next general mm-hmm. election, it could even be 17 months as well. It, that window is shrinking all the time. Effectively, just being on the back foot, having to deal with these uh, allegations of conduct. And part of this, it comes from the fact that the Tories have had a lot of churn. There's been a lot of them in and out of government as well. But also the fact that the government's been in office for 12 years. So effectively, the same time as, as happens with any long-standing individual work inside an organization there are going to be people that like people that don't like them there are there are going to be they will build up reputations and in the most serious cases there are allegations that emerge about inappropriate behavior so effectively what this shows is that the prime minister has to become more ruthless in how he handles his party and at the moment as the date we are recording this this is the uh, 2nd of february dominic raab is still in post and he has shown a remarkable resilience. He's decided just to carry on. He insists he's done nothing wrong. He has a great deal of respect for the department in which he worked. But ultimately, I think mm. the decision isn't really going to be his. I think if the investigation comes back and shows that he did, there was enough evidence, then Rishi Sunak will have to sack him straight away. But at some point, this, Mr. Sunak is going to have to pivot away from these uh, relying on these other people and trust his own judgment. And effectively, look around the table and say, do you know what? If you are even thinking about doing something wrong or you have even is even a question mark over you i'm going to sack you because ultimately i think that's the only way to strengthen his own position over the party at the moment he's played this kind of peacekeeper role but his own party his own position i would argue is actually relatively secure in the sense that there isn't really an obvious successor the tories at the moment have a choice of either sticking with mr sinek and this, is, this, of course, could all change after the May local elections if the Tory parliamentary party panics or going back to Boris Johnson. There is, no, there is no third person here. It's either Sunak or Johnson. And as we said before, if, it's, if the Tories bring Johnson back in, not only be deeply damaging to them, but it would also really harm them in the eyes. Because obviously, Mr Johnson went out of office being synonymous for being a rule breaker. And that reputation is really stuck with the public. So if the Prime Minister can become more ruthless and learn to trust his own judgment more, he will make his remainder of his mm. premiership to the election and possibly beyond that much better. But also he has to start building allies, looking at who he trusts around him and ultimately becoming a better judge of character, I'd say, and trusting his own judgment, not yeah. relying so much on these independent advisors. Obviously, you're talking about um, you know his relations with his his party, but what about the country as a whole? Because it's the country that is going to decide whether he remains prime minister um you wouldn't get good odds i don't think on that at the moment well i think you're partly right i think until the election it's the tory parliamentary party that are really in control of his destiny at the Mm. moment Uh, but the country will have a say in the local elections i think the tories are expecting a, a strong showing i mean any party that's into its fourth term in government and certainly has had a lot and if you look at where new labor were at this point after their length of time in office, and they were, they dealt with a lot less in terms of the, the big shocks that they've had. Uh, Mr. Sunak is going to have to make some headway on his big five pledges. And uh, ultimately this week, he's had his first hundred days in office. Uh, the things that have, there have been some odd steps, like the, the Jeremy Hunt coffee video is, is a good one. 
but the, the the Mr. Sunak has also made some smart pledges on things like halving inflation that he can point to as well. There's actually been some good news this morning from uh, the Bank of England. The Monetary Policy Committee report says that the the recession is projected to be shallower than previously thought. Mm. So that could be good. I mean, the the thing that Mr. Sunak we worried about was that previously the OBR suggested in their November forecast that the recession could last all the way until basically the next election in autumn of 2024. Uh, and the, the the most likely path for victory for the Tories at the next election is seen to be kind of emulating John Major after Thatcher, where you've had a very dominant period, a dominant personality of leadership, sort of comparing it to Johnson here, and a bit of turbo, turmoil, which is trust, aka Black Wednesday. And then but John Major was able to, was able to walk that line by being seen to be someone who was a bit new and a bit different. Now, Sunak hasn't mm. done that yet. He can still do it, and he has actually got, he's got William Hague behind him, advising him as well. And I think if anyone knows what it's like, Hague's obviously a veteran of both those, the major government, but also mm. being Tory leader himself and managing a difficult party. And he also knows what to do, not what not to do to uh, <laughs> win elections as well from, from 2001, having been against Blair. But that path is still very narrow, and I am intrigued to see what Sunak does in the coming weeks and months. I think we we can expect solid message discipline, but ultimately the biggest threat in the short term is his Mm -hmm. unruly parliamentary party as well. And poor local election results in May really will work against that too. But never underestimate Sunak, never underestimate the ability of the Labour Party to shoot itself in the foot. Even though Kirsten was 20 points ahead, I'd argue that's a very, very, very soft lead. Okay. They, I, you need something of a blunderbuss to shoot yourself in the foot so badly that you, you could lose <laughs> from here. Obviously, that, I mean, me. obviously, for, for, for many people, it's not just the cost of, of, of living, but also um, the sort of what seems like incessant strikes at the moment, these comparisons with the winter of discontent. We've not got very long left, Mike, but how do we summarise all that? And is Sunak um, and the, the cabinet, are they actually responding in the right way? It depends. I think we, we could talk about the strikes as a as a, as, a, as, a, as a homogenous collective. Actually, I think we have to differentiate by sector. So there are strikes that are that will affect, I would say, the London metropolitan bubble a bit more. So any sort of train strikes are automatically going to annoy a lot of commuting journalists and professionals and people that mm. might write the news in London, also politicians as well. I had to hold an event in Westminster this week on either side of a train strike. We managed to get it ahead to... I think the teacher strikes and the, the, the ambulance strikes are much different. So there's a, there's a high level of support for the nurses, for the ambulance workers. Teachers are going to be different because that's lots of parents up and down the country who now have to think about alternative childcare arrangements. Which, for, of course, they had to do quite a lot during the pandemic as well. Exactly, as well. So I think never underestimate that, obviously, as, as I've said before, the unions are not looking at public opinion here. They are looking at what's good for their members. That's why Mick Lynch says the things that he says. You know, the government also passed their minimum service legislation this week. I'm not sure that the strikes themselves would be enough to bring down the Sunak government at the next election. But what it does do, it feeds into an overall narrative that nothing in Britain is working. And you hear this from all sides now, really. There's There's been uh, Tory MPs standing up in Parliament saying, where's our plan on the NHS? There's you know there's there's people who I know who are very much the right thinking that they might want to vote 
Labour at the next election just to give them a bait. That, I think that the, the one that kind of got it for me was when Sir Rod Stewart phoned in Sky News and bear in mind the man who wrote a song about mm. Maggie Thatcher <laughs> is now saying, give Labour a go. And unfortunately, mm. the government needs a sense of reinvigoration. And what they have got is they've got a youthful uh, looking leader. And I think Sunak Sun with lots of energy. What I don't think that equates to is ideas. And ultimately, I think the Tories tend to win on competence. But even if they win the next election, it would be a long parliament. It would be a long and difficult parliament. I would expect them to have a reduced majority, if any majority at all. The worst case scenario would be if, they, if Labour couldn't quite catch them up. And it was like a sort of 19 February 1974 style thing mm-hmm. where both parties are so close in the number of seats and Sunak has to manage his party through yes. that as well. In ultimate, I don't think the strikes be enough to make a difference on their own side, but I think they feed into an overall part of narrative that things in this country and the Tories aren't working. And that is something that is a big threat to the government, I would say. Yeah. Mike, thank you very much indeed. That's Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike, I hope, will be back with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. 